0: The scripture for today's sermon is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. This is God's word to us. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word to us.
1: Thanks be to God. God. Amen. Awesome. Thanks, sis. Guys, good morning. How are we doing? I appreciate you uh, using your legs to lift that heavy Bible. It's good. I don't want you to throw your back out. It's the largest reading Bible I've ever seen. I'm desperately jealous of it. Uh, Hey, so a couple of things as we dive in today. First of all, thank you guys for your hospitality and your love. I I miss you guys. I miss you. I love you. It's always good for my soul to get to be here and to see old friends and to meet new friends. And uh, I secondly want to thank you, even on a broader, bigger level, for the impact that you're having on so many different churches. Uh, You guys are an example of faithfulness. You're an example of love for God's word, for community, for serving, for reaching the next generation. And our entire family of churches, they send their love and greetings to you, all of our frontline congregations and partner churches, but they're also being stirred by you guys to love and good deeds. And sometimes when you're in the midst of a move of God and really special things are happening, we're not even mindful of it, we're not aware of it. And, and I just wanna say, as a guy that's been in pastoral ministry for over 20 years now, planted 17 years ago, uh, what's happening in this room is really special, it's really special. And I don't want that to be taken for granted. I want us to enjoy God's grace. And in the midst of a movement of God, to just be mindful of the fact that we get to participate in something really powerful and really beautiful. So thanks for letting me be here. I'm really excited. It's an honor that David would give me a rep to get to uh, introduce one of my favorite books of the Bible. And so I'm going to pray for you, ask you to pray for me, and we're going to dive in. Uh, Father, I'm not, I'm not in any way trying to suck up or blow smoke. I'm just really grateful for what you're doing here. Um, I'm really thankful for the pastors here. They're they're such godly, good men. I'm thankful for the deacons and deaconesses. I'm thankful for the community group leaders that are faithfully in the trenches with people. I'm thankful for the army of kids volunteers that are trying to faithfully come alongside moms and dads to teach the gospel to little ones. Um, I'm thankful for all the members. That are finding their place in your body and using their gifts. And I'm just thankful for even all the new friends that are showing up as we kick off a new school year. And I pray in the midst of all of your kindness to us that you would help us to posture our hearts today, um, not just as intellectual learners, but as recipients. That this wouldn't just be data or facts about an ancient city, but that this would be a moment where we encounter the living God. So would you help us? Would you be with us? And uh, would you teach us, Holy Spirit, because without you, we're not going to see Jesus and we're going to miss the point of everything. So help us, we pray. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Hey, if you got your Bible, you can find 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's also a bit terrifying to dive into, to preach through verse by verse. Um, I've got a practice where I like to, like a week out before us starting a new sermon series on a book of the Bible, I like to sit down and just read that book of the Bible in one sitting. And I did that two weeks ago with 1 Corinthians and part of me was like, I cannot wait to preach through this amazing, exciting book. And part of me's like, on these nine passages, I call not it. I wanna, I wanna pass the mic. Like I'm, I'm picking vacation days based on the text that we have to preach. If you've read this book of the Bible, it's got, it's got some spicy stuff in it, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I, I don't think, and it's, a, it's an exaggeration to say, that this is one of the most important books of the Bible. And the whole canon, all 66 books, it's all inspired by God. It's all revealing who God is in Jesus, and it all matters. But this is just one of those books that I can't imagine navigating what it is to be the church if we didn't have it. This is a book that has the most detailed teaching in the New Testament on some really important things about sex and singleness and marriage and divorce. This is a book that talks about church discipline and the heart of church discipline. It's a book that frames up what it is to be a leader in the local church as a servant of God's people. It's a book that clearly invites us in to behold the person of the Holy Spirit, not as an it, but as a he, The Spirit of the Living God at Work, it's a book that teaches us in detail about spiritual gifts and what it looks like to be filled by the Holy Spirit and to minister to one another as we gather and as we scatter. Without this book, we would be foggy about the Lord's Supper. We would struggle to know what to do in corporate worship. And without this book, we would miss some of the best bits of the Bible on the very essence and heartbeat of what the church is. So this book is beautiful and it matters. And that's why over the course of the next 40 weeks, together we're gonna engage this letter from the heart of God. And I just wanna say up front as we dive into this, I don't know what your church background is. I don't know what your experience has been. But I wanna encourage you to not see what we're doing together as a spectator sport. This is not about talented orators getting together and trying to put together hot takes. This is about us together opening God's word and eating it consuming it, wrestling with it. And one of the things that's so powerful about preaching through a whole book of the Bible is one, you, are, you and I are both drowning in a world of hot takes and you don't need another. You need to hear from God. You need to hear from the living God and that's what we get with this book. In addition, you're gonna know every single week where we left off and where we're gonna pick up. So you're invited to do your own work, to open your Bible, to feed yourself, to engage what God's saying and to show up on Sunday morning with questions, and with resistance, and with the places that you feel like God's inviting you into deeper discipleship to Jesus. So I want to do a couple of things today. I want to start by giving you a bit of background on the city of Corinth. And the reason I want to do that is because this is one of those letters that at every turn highlights tension between Paul and the Corinthians, but also between the way of Jesus and the Corinthians. And the tension you're going to find in this book, the parts of this book that feel like you're overhearing a really awkward but grace-filled conversation between a pastor and the people he loves and serves, in those places of tension, that tension is in part a result of the history of Corinth and the desire of Jesus to do something new in that city. So let me give you just a couple of things to think about. Uh, The Greek city-state of Corinth was in the southern part of what's now Greece, And it was a powerful city in the Greek world. It was a city of commerce. It was a city of philosophy. It was a city that was geographically strategic, that had natural resources, and that exploded with growth in the Greek empire. Corinth got sideways with Rome as Rome came to power. And Rome wiped out Corinth in 146 BC. And they devastated it. They left the city of Corinth in ruins for over 100 years. And after a hundred years of being empty and idle, Julius Caesar decided to reestablish a Roman colony in Corinth in 44 BC. And he sent a group of Roman freemen to be the core of that colony. And what happened with Roman power, with the geographical location of Corinth, is that that city exploded with growth. And by the time the apostle Paul showed up in the city of Corinth, which we have the record of in Acts chapter 18, it was somewhere between 49 and 51 AD, Paul showed up and that city was one of the most bustling, powerful and wealthy cities in the entire ancient world. It was a city that had a thick culture, It was a city that was known for not only commerce but for entertainment. It was a city that hosted the second largest athletic event in the ancient world, uh, second only to the Olympic Games. It was a city that was probably a prototypical perfect example of what it it felt like to live in the Greco-Roman world. A world in which the culture of Rome and the cultures of Greece mixed together with various other beliefs and practices to build the stew that was Corinth. It was a city that was known for some really big things. Uh, First, the city of Corinth was known for its vices, for its vices. It's not an exaggeration to say that Corinth was the Vegas of the ancient world. It was, it was so full of vices, especially as it related to sexual promiscuity, that one ancient author coined a term, Corinthiazo, Corinthiazo, which literally meant to act like a Corinthian as it relates to sexual promiscuity. So imagine like if our city was so crazy, people were like, oh man, they're admitting out right now. Like <laughs> Corinth was famous, it was famous for originally having temple prostitutes and then just having tons of license as it related to sexual immorality. In addition, it was known for its spirituality. Uh, it was a city where every single weird, tiny, obscure cult and every big, widely accepted belief all met in the city of Corinth. It was, a, it was a place that had over 26 different sacred sites in the city. So there were temples and there were sacrifices and there were priests and there were priestesses. In addition, it was a city full of both the old ways of Greek wisdom and philosophy and the new ideas. It was a place where Greek thought was really prominent. We're going to find that thread throughout the book. It was a city where the citizens were always clamoring for wisdom, for wisdom. And it was a city that I think we could resonate with real deeply as Oklahomans. It was a city that was just kind of famous for like a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of pride and resiliency. Uh, Rome was a super stratified culture. And so typically in most Roman cities, you would die in the same class that you were born into. But the city of Corinth was kind of unique because it was made up of both freemen and merchants. And so if you were were a good business person, if you had your head on your shoulders and you had some entrepreneurial energy, Corinth was the kind of place where you could kind of believe that the future was up to you to create, that the sky was the limit, that you could do whatever you wanted to do and be whoever you wanted to be. And so you had people that were former slaves and not in the ruling class that in Corinth became city officials that had tons of power. And that led to some really cool things, but it also led to a swagger, to a sense of pride that affected the citizens of Corinth. And the reason I take you through those things is because I just want you to imagine like, the thick culture that Paul would have been drinking in his first week in this city. It was a city, it was a city that was full of the ways of Corinth. And the citizens of Corinth were enculturated by their city in both ways that they could name intellectually, but also in ways that just skip the head and go straight to the gut. The ways of Corinth were all around them, shaping what they believed about wisdom and the good life, about honor and shame, about pride and power, about bodies and spirits and what bodies are for and what spirits are for. So the city of Corinth was literally buzzing with the ways of Corinth, with the culture of Corinth. It was alive with it. It was alive with it. And in the midst of Acts chapter 18, Paul shows up in this city, and the Bible tells us that he spent 18 months in that town preaching the gospel. And what's really fascinating is that as jacked up as the city of Corinth was, as alive with the ways of Corinth as it was, God shows up in a vision to the Apostle Paul and tells him to go on preaching the good news of Jesus because God had many people in that city. And so Paul obeys. He starts with Jewish people and he tells them the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then eventually he gets booted out of the synagogue, as was the typical practice, and he went to the Gentiles and he started preaching to the Gentiles the way of Jesus. And the Spirit of God did this amazing thing in Corinth. He started regenerating hearts, giving people faith in Christ. And people from all walks of life, from all backgrounds started trusting in Jesus. You had wealthy patrons that became Christians. You had slaves that became Christians. You had men and you had women. You had Jews and Gentiles. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God starts doing something crazy that we're going to experience through the rest of this letter. He starts establishing a new colony in the old colony of Corinth. And the new colony of Corinth is not an earthly geopolitical colony. The new colony of Corinth is a colony of the kingdom of heaven. It's a group of people that have been called out of the ways of their city to the living way of Jesus Christ, to be the salt and light of Jesus in their city, to be a new people, to be an outpost of the king surrounded by the colony of Corinth. And this is where the rub gets created because it's a tricky thing to be called out of Corinth while still living in Corinth, amen? And what we're gonna find is that though the Christians in Corinth were called to the way of Jesus, they had a lot of Corinth that still lived inside of them. And the rub begins to be exposed that the barrier between the colony of Jesus and the colony of Rome was a lot more permeable than what the people that became Christians in Corinth tended to believe. And so after Paul's departure from that city, what started to happen is the tractor beam of the ways of Corinth started pulling Christians back in. They started to become re-enculturated. Their beliefs and their loves and their habits of life started to be shaped more by the city than by the way of Jesus. Gordon Fee wrote one of my favorite commentaries on the book of 1 Corinthians, and he puts it like this. Although they were the, the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviors that required radical surgery without killing the patient. This is what this letter attempts to do. See, here's what's happening. In this letter, we're gonna find a spiritual father in Paul that loves the Corinthians, that's committed to their Corinthians, and he's gonna be reflecting the heart of their heavenly father to call them over and over again back to the way of Jesus instead of the ways of Corinth. And what we're gonna find for the next 40 weeks as we walk through this book is that we, like the Corinthian Christians, are called to be a colony of Jesus in Edmund and Guthrie. We're called to the way of Christ in ways that are countercultural and unique. We, like the Corinthian Christians, are called to evangelize our friends and neighbors with the good news of Jesus, even while we're always constantly being evangelized by the ways of our city. We are called to bring the salty brightness of Jesus to our city, even in the midst of being tempted and pulled back into the ways of the culture in which we live. And so today, as we open up the first nine verses of this letter, Paul begins not just with obligatory salutations. This is not just a throwaway greeting. The first nine verses of this book is Paul laying the foundation for everything he's going to say to the Corinthians. He's going to have rebuke and encouragement. He's going to have correction. I'll give you a heads up. uh, Paul is an equal opportunity offender. By the end of this sermon series, everybody in this room is going to get mad at least six times. (laughs) But the foundation of all of his instruction and even his correction and rebuke is found in the first nine verses. And what Paul is doing in the first nine verses is laying the foundation for the house of Christianity. And that house does contain walls and a ceiling and windows and doors and furniture and all that matters Our beliefs and our practices matter. But the foundation of the house is where you have to start. And the foundation of the house is what we have in the first nine verses. These verses sink down into the very bedrock foundation of the way of Jesus. They are, in essence, the charter of the colony of Jesus in Corinth and every other city until Jesus returns. So take your Bible. Flip, flip, to First uh, Corinthians chapter one. I want to show you three things, three things that reveal Paul's theology and the foundation of Christian life and practice. The first thing, number one, is that Paul is clear that God is the prime actor. God is the prime actor. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, there's all kinds of people at work in the city of Corinth, in the church and outside of the church. Outside of the church, there's priests and priestesses. There's philosophers and Stoics. There are merchants, and city officials, some opposed to the church, some ambivalent ambivalent to the church. And in the church, there's all kinds of factions. We're going to be introduced to charismaniacs that think that the end-all, be-all of the Christian life is expressing the gifts of the Spirit. We're going to be exposed to Christians in the city of Corinth that have agendas related to money and power. And in the midst of all of those voices and all of those choices in the church and outside of the church, what Paul is crystal clear on is that God himself is the prime actor in history. He's the one that's working and moving and God is going to accomplish every single thing that he wants to do even in the midst of all the chaos. So let me give you a few examples. First of all, for Paul, he's clear that God is the source of his authority. His authority, look at verse one. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Here's what you're going to find. In this book, and especially in 2 Corinthians, there's a lot of Corinthian Christians that are just not impressed by Paul. They loved great orators. They loved people whose rhetorical skills and personal presence when they spoke were impressive. And what we know about Paul is that he's brilliant and he's a great writer, but his personal presence wasn't overwhelming. And his oration wasn't very good. And so there's a lot of people that are just kind of sick of Paul. They're ready to move on to the next thing. There's other people that are offended by Paul. Um, This is a bit confusing, but 1 Corinthians is not the first letter that Paul ever wrote to the Corinthian church. There was a previous letter that we don't have that contained some kind of correction and people were mad at Paul. And so Paul begins this letter, listen, not with his resume, not with arguing for his intellectual acumen or for how gifted he is, or even for his work ethic. Paul stands in the authority that he has as an apostle, not rooted in anything he's done, but rooted simply in the sovereign call of God. Like, hey, what would it look like if you and me could navigate life Not by primarily thinking that we self-author our lives or trying to prove ourselves to ourselves and one another. What would it look like to navigate life seeing God is the prime actor that created you, formed you, gave you your limitations as well as your capacities. He's the one that spoke you into existence. He's the one that redeemed you. He's the one that defines you. He's the one that leads you through the various seasons of life in your vocation. God is the prime actor in Paul's authority. Secondly, he's the source of the church's identity. God is the prime actor in the church's identity. Look at verse 2. Paul writes to the church of God that is in Corinth. Not Paul's church, not the wealthy patron's church, not the charismaniac's church, not the people that want to practice severe bodily discipline. It's not their church. It's Jesus's church. It's the church of God. It's the church that exists because the initiative of God the Father through the work of his Son, it's God's church beginning, middle, and end. And this is really encouraging because in the last 17 years of being a church planter and a pastor, there's moments where I've been tempted to act as if the church was mine. There's been moments in the history of our church where there's been factions and groups and particular camps and teams that have wanted to act like the church is theirs. And what we find is that the church exists because God is the prime mover and Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father as the sovereign head of his church. He's the one that plants churches. He's the one that sometimes unplants churches. We exist because of his work. In addition, we find that he's also the source of the Christian's identity. So our corporate identity is the church, but our individual identity as Christians also finds its genesis in God. Look at verse two. Paul writes to the church of God that is in Corinth. You should circle these next words in your Bible because they're scandalous when you see how messed up this church is. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Okay, Paul is going to call the Corinthian Christians back to the ways of Jesus to have behavior that lines up with the character, and with the ethics of the kingdom. But here's what we find. Paul does not call them to adjust behavior to become what they aren't. He calls them to adjust the behavior of their lives to reflect what God's already done in Jesus. They've been sanctified in Christ. God has already forgiven them, called them, given them new names. Paul is gonna call them to live from the foundational reality that who they are, is already adopted and forgiven, chosen, redeemed, set apart, and called to be saints. God has worked in the Corinthians, and they're called to flesh out the implications of that based on the foundation of the unshakable indicatives of new life in Christ. And this leads to the last thing that's the summation of all this. God is the prime actor because he's the source of Paul's confidence and hope. Look what he says in verse 8. And uh, this is gonna become increasingly shocking as you become familiar with just how broken and sinful the Corinthian Christians are. But look at verse eight. God who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here's what Paul is saying. Um, Paul's not anxious or pacing. He's not wondering if the Corinthian Christians are gonna make it on the great day. Here's what he knows. He is confident to the very core of his being that God who began a good work in them will complete it on the day of Jesus and on the great day, the day of the Lord, the day of consummation and judgment. He's confident that the Corinthians are gonna stand in the presence of God God guiltless because God's able to finish everything he started in them. So, hey, stop there for just a second. And I I don't want to presume or pretend to know what are the agents at work in your life, where your own body feels to be a prime mover, betraying you with sickness or with the loss of capacity. Or where your spouse feels to be the prime mover who seems to have the authority and power to write your history, to define you, to define your narrative or your destination. Or where your singleness feels like the prime actor in your life. Or where external factors, um, your kids, and whether or not they're going through rebellion or doing well or leaving home or staying at home. I know in the midst of life, there's all kinds of people at work exercising agency. There's human choices, there are angelic choices, and all those things are around us all the time. And Paul doesn't discount the importance of human choice and agency, but for Paul, here's the foundation of his life. The sovereign God of the universe who cannot be stopped, cannot be contained, cannot be silenced, will do every single thing he wants to do in the life of his people. He'll finish it. And that means like, hey, you don't, have to be, you don't have to be terrified or anxious. We don't have to pretend that people are giant and God is small. And the pathologies of the world, the weird ideas, we don't have to be the kind of people that are constantly in reaction to that. And we don't have to be the kind of people that worship the power of the princes of our world, terrified of political changes or terrified of what happens in our city or with our boss or with our spouse, God is the prime agent. God is the prime mover. And Paul is confident of that. And that leads to the second thing that's foundational. In addition, Paul's just obsessed with grace. Everything for Paul is grace. Everything is grace. Grace is the essential orientation of life. Look where he starts. Verse one, the first word of this book, Paul. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I think this is amazing. I think before Paul addresses the grace of God to the Corinthians, he starts with his own name to remind himself and them that grace is everything. Well, wh- why would that be? Well, if you've ever heard Paul's story, Paul hated Jesus, hated Jesus. And Paul, Paul exhibited the worst kind of human religion, like the kind of human religion that sanctifies, murder, murder, and destruction is the kind of religion that Paul had. Paul separated moms from babies and threw people in jail. Paul breathed out threats and blasphemy against Jesus. Paul was there on the day that Stephen, one of the first martyrs of the church, had his brains bashed in by rocks. Paul was standing there watching and giving hearty approval to it and holding people's coats so that they could get full swings as they murdered Stephen. And Paul, on the road to Damascus, who did nothing to earn God's love and did everything to earn God's condemnation and judgment, had his entire story interrupted by the grace of God in Jesus when Jesus showed up and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Changed the trajectory of Paul for all eternity. Paul didn't figure it out. Paul didn't achieve some kind of greatness or morality and then receive it. It was just God's pursuit in Jesus that changed all of Paul's life. And this leads Paul to the kind of confidence, even in the midst of everything that's jacked up in Corinth, to say, verse three, grace to you. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Corinthians are so broken, but the foundation of this letter is that they have already received in Jesus the unmerited favor of God that those that have trusted in Jesus have been adopted, forgiven, that God is not waiting for them to address all these issues of immaturity and faulty belief and bad practices before he loves them and delights in them. Through the finished work of Jesus, even in the midst of everything that's wrong, they stand in the sunlight of God's favor and love as his beloved children. And I'm fully aware that in your life and mine, there's places where we feel almost an infinite gap between who we are and who we want to grow up to be. In the midst of the gap, we can start to believe the lie that the way that people change is by doing transformation in our own power or getting to God or making ourselves different so that God would then love us and accept us. But the message of transformation we're gonna find in 1 Corinthians is that you actually change when you bring all of your life, even the bits that are sinful and broken, into the presence of the Father through the work of Jesus, and you hear him say, hey, I love you. (laughs) I love you. And yeah, there's places where I'm gonna discipline you and chasten you and correct you, but none of that is to make you a recipient of my love. It's all because I've already shown you my love grace and peace, shalom, everything needed for depth and beauty that God in Jesus has already started to set everything to rights that's broken in the Corinthian church. And what happens next is really shocking in light of the brokenness of the Corinthians. What Paul's about to say is wild when you keep in mind that first of all, the Corinthian Christians are famous for boasting in their superiority. And I know, like we live in a world where like pride and being Christians can sometimes seem to go together, it's an oxymoron. <laughs> like, prideful Christians shouldn't exist because everything we have, we just have by grace. And the, the only thing that we have to boast in is Jesus Christ crucified for us. That's how jacked up we are. Jesus had to die for us. And yet the Corinthian Christians are boasting about their spiritual superiority. They're celebrating a man's sexual relationship with his stepmom So the Corinthians are watching this go down. This guy's having an affair with his stepmom and the Corinthian Christians are like, man, aren't we just like so incredibly gracious and progressive that we're encouraging him to just chase his best life now? You be you, it's amazing. They're celebrating it. They're dragging each other to court over trivial disputes to to pagan judges that want people to swear allegiance to Caesar as God. So Christians are getting bent with each other in their community group and instead of working it out, like instead of finding a wise mediator in the church, they're just dragging each other to court for any kind of stupid thing. They're justifying, they're justifying neglect for the poor in the midst of the Lord's Supper. So the wealthy Christians, there was a lot of wealthy merchants in Corinth that became Christians, and the wealthy Christians are showing up to the family meal of the house of God, and they're, they're bringing like an epic spread. They got foie gras, caviar, they're breaking out lobster, they got T-bones, smoked brisket, and then the poor Christians are showing up, and they're like, they're rocking ramen noodles, and they don't even have the flavor packets. It's just like, it's like, it's like college fair. If you put yourself through college, you know the, the pain of ramen noodles. How do I make this stretch and not die? And they're just, they're, just, they're just showing up to church, and instead of the wealthy people sharing with the poor Christians, they're acting like they're superior to them. And then they're going to the Lord's Supper, and they're getting drunk on communion wine. Okay, friends, I don't think you need me to tell you that this is not senior frogs, right? <laughs> These aren't jello shots. This is, a, this is a sacrament. And then you have this whole camp of Corinthian Christians. This is so wild. They're um, they're saying that to be really spiritual, husbands and wives shouldn't have sexual relations in the context of marriage, and in certain cases, they're even encouraging Christian husbands and wives to divorce so that they can be more spiritual, while at the same time justifying the use of prostitutes for Christians. I don't know how they did that math, but they got, they got it wrong. They got it wrong. Some believe that the gift of tongues is the end-all, be-all sign of spiritual superiority, their worship services were chaotic, crazy. Everybody's talking at the same time. They were seemingly more influenced by Greek ideas of ecstatic utterances than biblical prophecy. It was bonkers. And then probably the most disturbing of everything, you had Corinthian Christians that are denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and our bodily resurrection. Okay, listen. The whole ball game is based on the resurrection. Like, we, we missed that. We missed literally everything. There's, there's no point. All of this is a joke. If Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, we have no hope and we're of all people most to be pitied. And they're getting that wrong. And so in the light of all that, here's what Paul says in verse four. This is not what I would say, but look what Paul says. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. This is amazing. Amazing. This is amazing. Paul's not being nice. He's not being conflict avoidant. He's not trying to butter them up. Paul is simply living his life with a grace orientation that lets him relate to them, even in the midst of the places they need correction and rebuke from the foundation of what's most true about them. That God in Christ has redeemed them, forgiven them, poured out his grace on them, and is working in their life to accomplish his purpose. Grace Grace is the foundation of this book, and by the way, grace is the empowerment to fight sin, it's the empowerment to grow into maturity. It's the invitation, it's the invitation to evaluate places where we're out of step with the way of Jesus and to repent and to seek growth from a place of love and acceptance and mercy not to get it. And this leads to the final thing. The last thing that's foundational for this book and central to Paul's theology is that Jesus is the center of true spirituality. Jesus is the center of true spirituality. Um, So we have nine verses in the opening, nine verses. How many times does Paul mention Jesus's name? Nine times. (laughs) Okay, Paul's like, hey, you know what I want to talk about? Jesus, Jesus. And the reason this is so important is that the Corinthian Christians are really famous for arguing about what makes someone truly spiritual. You had some Corinthians, and their argument was that uh, demonstrative spiritual gifts, that's what makes you really spiritual. So you don't necessarily need the fruit of the Spirit in your life, but as long as you speak in tongues, you're truly spiritual. You've arrived. For other Corinthian Christians, they were really into Greek wisdom and knowledge, and, and their argument went something like this. They're like, hey, Paul, thanks for bringing us the milk of the gospel, all that stuff about the cross, but we've moved past the milk of the gospel to the really deep stuff beyond the cross and resurrection. They think that the truly spiritual person graduates from Christ crucified for us and raised from the dead to really deep, important stuff. And Paul opens this letter by saying, guys, guys, it is all about Jesus. Jesus is the center of authentic spirituality. Jesus is the center of true maturity. To be mature and truly spiritual is to trust in Jesus, to love Jesus, to follow Jesus, and to obey Jesus. Christ is the wisdom of God. There's the one, he is the one mediator between man and God. And what Paul's gonna do in the first two chapters of this book is he's gonna say, hey, Corinthians, you know what true wisdom looks like? It looks like a Roman cross on which the Son of God hung. And if you want to arrive at real depth and real beauty, you don't have to go further than the cross. You don't need a pilgrimage. You don't need the Stoic philosophers. You don't need Aristotle. You need Jesus. And in our particular cultural moment, this is a great invitation to all of us, that you don't graduate to a deeper kind of maturity than Jesus. And in the midst of all the competing spiritualities, all the Oprahisms, and all the ways that things become politically charged, and all the weirdness of our culture, What Paul is going to tell us at every turn is that a truly mature spiritual person loves, trusts, and follows Jesus. Now, here's what's going to happen. As we dive into this book, um, first of all, we're going to get invited to see the church differently, right? You know what's super Zoolander hot right now? Just banging on the church. Just banging on the church. Just make the church your pinata and beater. Point out all the places she fails Um, open any hard conversation with, well, the church has often got this wrong. It's like, well, yeah, but then the next thing that usually you hear someone say is just condemnation, tearing down the bride of Christ. Here's what this letter's gonna invite us to, to do. Not to like sweep the brokenness of the church under the rug, not at all. The church on this side of heaven will always be a community of sinners and saints who are people that have been justified and are still wrestling with sin in the flesh, which means we're gonna do dumb stuff. We're gonna get stuff wrong. We're gonna blow things up. We're gonna have broken relationships. We're not always gonna believe the right thing or teach the right thing or do the right thing because we are sinners saved by grace. But this letter is gonna remind us that the job of the accuser of the brethren is not your job or my job. That's Satan's job. And it's our job to love the church as the bride of Christ, to pray for the church, to see our culpability in the places that the church is broken, to work for her edification, that she might be built up and more holy and more mature, to love the church. In addition, this great book, this letter, is gonna invite us to slowly, by God's grace, close some of the gaps in our lives. All right, based on the grace of God, there's gaps that you're aware of, there's gaps I'm aware of. Places where our life is out of step with the gospel, where the ways of our city are more prevalent than the way of Jesus Christ, and this is going to be a book that invites us in to addressing the gap, to growing in right belief and growing in right practice, fleshing out lives of of increasing um, holiness and reflection of the way of Jesus, as we build on the foundation of what God's already done in Christ. So. I'm excited. I'm thankful that you're here. I'm thankful that we get to do this together. And I want us to take a second and stand up together and just offer God our response to this book and pray that He would move deeply in our church. Father, we thank you for writing this letter. Um, Lord, I want to ask in the room that those three truths, those foundations, that you're the prime actor, that grace is the essential orientation and that Jesus is the center of true spirituality, I pray that those things would become, not just for Paul, but for us, our orientation to life. When Nobody looked around. Some of you in the room have trusted in Jesus, but man, what feels the biggest to you are the places you've blown it in the last seven days or the last seven years. And I just want to say to you as clearly as I know how to say the most fundamental reality about you is what Christ has accomplished to forgive you, to credit you with his righteousness, to give you a place at the Father's table. And certainly, God may be disciplining or chastening your life, He may be calling you to repent, He may be calling you to be more honest. But the fuel to engage those gaps in your life is not found in earning, it's found in receiving what's already finished. Working from the grace of God, not for it. So God, I pray for my friends that you would fill them with your spirit, that you would fill them with assurance, that you would fill them with the kind of boasting in Christ that Paul exhibits, that we also would be confident that he that began a good work in us will complete it that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that our husband or our wife or our kids or our friends or our boss or our president or elected officials or philosophers or celebrities, none of these things have the power to derail or dethrone your work in the earth. You are accomplishing everything you want to accomplish. So Lord, give us confidence and peace and courage as we respond to you.